Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we take a look at some of the political parties running against the military junta in Thailand's upcoming elections. We meet a blind radio presenter who's working to spread disability awareness in Timor-Leste. We speak of a human rights advocate about Indonesia's internet law after an activist was arrested and charged for singing an anti-military protest song. And one of our contributors in Vietnam looks back on his experiences covering the Trump Kim Summit in Hanoi. Almost five years since the military seized power in a coup, Thailand is finally gearing up for its latest general elections. Due to take place on the 24th of March, the elections have triggered excitement across the country and a number of challenges and political parties, both new and established, have stepped forward in a bid for power. But the military junta isn't sitting this one out. Members of the military, including current Prime Minister and former Army General Prayut Chan-ucha, have joined their own political party to win power through the ballot box. For many Thais, this is a vote that's been a long time coming. But observers are still worried about the fairness of the elections and whether or not the military will even concede power if voted out. Adam Bemma gives us a rundown of the major players in the upcoming elections and the problems some of them have been facing. Thailand is again under an uncertainty prior to the long-delayed election. With Thailand's election less than two weeks away, political parties aligned with former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat have been dealt a serious blow. Thailand's constitutional court banned the Thai Raksachak party last week for nominating Princess Ubonrat as its candidate for Prime Minister. King Vajirilongkorn criticized the move as highly inappropriate and improper, effectively ending his sister's political aspirations and the party that backed her. After the election commission recommended that the constitutional court dissolve the Thai Raksachat party. Thai Raksachat is the third toxin-linked political party to be dissolved by courts since 2007. This may fare well for the pro-military Palang Pracharat party, aiming to keep retired General Prayut Chan-o-cha as Thailand's Prime Minister. Prayut came to power in the 2014 military coup as leader of the National Council for Peace and Order, replacing Prime Minister Yingluck Shinawat. Yingluck fled criminal charges in 2017, joining her brother Taksin in exile. Her party, Puatai, is still popular among Thais. Over 7 million new voters are expected to cast a ballot in what is one of the most anticipated elections in recent memory. Tirarat Yingxiaoron is Puatai Party's deputy spokesperson. This election is very important. Um, it's also very important that people vote strategically. People need to think first if you, you favor the side of democracy, you favor the side of non-democracy. And this is the key message that the party is trying to send out, saying that we are the only gateway, the only exit strategy for you out of the non-democracy side. We are pretty confident that we will be the biggest party to have the most seats. And therefore, you know, we will be definitely the, the leader in forming the coalition. All political candidates are being closely monitored on social media. 
Future Forward Party is now facing cybercrime charges and accusations of sharing false information online for comments made on Facebook. Kuntira Rungrunkat is Future Forward Party's deputy leader. The only way out of the conflict is actually making people um, believe in the parliamentary system again. So they wanted to build this political party that has clear principles on democracy and they think that the battle should be in the parliament and not elsewhere. The only way that we could end the cycle of the military interference in Thailand would be this party as an alternative. Future forward party detractors argue it's too Bangkok-centric to appeal to Thai voters. With Pua Thai Party's experience as the last elected government, the only other party with the same credentials is the Democrat Party. Prom Vicketsreth is one of its newest members. He helped set up New Dem, a group hoping to appeal to Thai voters with its slick use of social media. I actually thought joining a new party would be easier because, you know, you start from scratch. What you say is not wrong or, you know, you can just do trial and error along the way. Being a young member in an established party is a more difficult position. But I've been, I've been optimistic and we call ourselves New Democrats. It's a, a group of brand new politicians who came in with an ambition to really change the party and change the country. Fighting for a chance at the polls is the Commoners Party, consisting of many supporters of the pro-democracy red shirt movement. Pakon Arikun is party speaker. He says its main pillars are grassroots democracy, human rights, and equality. We used to be on the street, and now we are running to the parliament. Our party leaders say that uh, politics is not just in the parliament, but is actually everywhere. It is another arena that we view, carrying our political mission. Even if we doesn't have a single representative in the parliament this term, this election, we insist that we will carry on with uh, the Commoners Party. We make a distinction uh, to have uh, a grassroots, uh, the real grassroots political party. Tirarat says Pua Thai Party has been extremely cautious with its next-gen campaign targeting first-time voters. So we, we also use social media, but the party's decision is that we don't want to have the voters see a clear separation between the older generation and the newer generation. The selling point that, um, that the party has is that we are selling the experienced professionals who have, um, who have run the country before. There are things that if we say it, as a big party, you become a big target, right? So we are extra, extra careful. Kuntira says... Future Forward Party represents a new kind of Thai politics. We're not buying votes. We're not buying networks. We're not going to spend the public money that way. So because we're going to crowd um, fund and to get donation from people. So the money has to be spent with, you know, transparency. Prom believes the Democrats are the country's only chance to return to democracy. I think being uh, in, in the Democrat Party, that's one uh, advantage that other, pe- other parties do not have, which is you have the innovation and the ambition of the young generation, but also the experience of the older generations, which they're very open to working with us. So we try to combine both things together. Hey.
The last five years has been one of the longest periods of military rule in Thai history. Human Rights Watch criticized the NCPO in its World Report 2019 for using charges of royal insult, sedition, and cybercrime to silence its critics. Many Thais are too afraid to speak out against Prime Minister Prayut as he seeks to extend his hold on power through the Palang Pracharat party. But Thai artists have continued to challenge the crackdown on freedom of expression. Hip-hop collective, Rap Against Dictatorships, viral music video, What My Country's Got, has been viewed almost 60 million times. The song has given many Thais hope for an end to military rule and a return to democracy following the March 24th election. That report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Bangkok. In Timor-Leste, having a disability can mean living a life which is often sidelined or hidden. A range of cultural beliefs and accessibility barriers prevent people with disabilities from participating in public life. However, one man determined not to have his voice silenced is Alberto Alessio, Timor-Leste's first blind radio broadcaster. At just 29 years old, he's already overcome many challenges in order to fulfill his childhood dream of becoming a journalist on a national stage. Alessio is now using his platform to challenge presupposed notions of prejudice and misinformation in his home country. In Dili, Laura McDowell meets with Alessio to talk about what he's achieved and how he wants to build on it. It's 4pm Thursday afternoon in Timor-Leste's capital of Dili. The streets are busy with cars and motorbikes trying to beat the impending afternoon rain. Anyone tuned in to 95.8 FM on the local radio will be listening to Alberto Alessio introduce his weekly show. Hola, oyentes Ronan en Radio Liberdade. Filajicas a Alberto Alesio y el programa Opinión Público. Bedisao o en Indian Lauren Ronulo. Fula en septiembre tiene río rua sanulo resinualo. Today he's talking with studio guests about using respectful language. They're asking listeners not to use the common term matan art, which translates to broken eyes. Instead, they suggest using deficiencia matan or disability of the eyes. Alberto was born for radio. He's smart and funny and confident. He's got a great voice and he's been fighting his whole life to use it. I wanted to be a journalist since I was a child. My dream was to be a presenter and a journalist. But because of my condition, it was difficult for me to achieve my dream. He grew up in the village of Balibar, in the mountains behind Dili. We had school in the morning and helped our parents in the afternoon. On the weekend, we took the vegetables to sell at the market. This was to support the family financially. 
When I was 13 years old, I got a bad eye infection. In our village, the Indonesian military forced everyone to move to Dili, away from the village. When I got the eye infection, it was difficult for my family to take me to the hospital to get treatment. I couldn't get medicine for my eye, so one of my eyes stopped functioning. Then later the infection spread to my other eye. I was totally blind by 2009 when I was 20 years old. For Alberto, becoming blind changed how his family and his community treated him. For example, often in community activities, I wasn't really included. They said that because of my condition, I just had to see it. Because if I moved, I might have an accident or a disaster. In Timor-Leste, there is a lot of discrimination. One type is isolation. They don't want to include all people equally. Isolated people with disabilities just stay at home and don't have opportunities to participate in activities. He says perceptions about disability are complicated, sometimes informed by cultural beliefs that disabilities may result from curses or ancestral punishment. I also don't know, but it is a structural problem in the society. It has happened in society in the past until now. Only for a few people this has changed, but too many still believe in all ideas about disability. This is from the past, from the ancestors. To challenge prejudice, Alberto uses everyday actions. For example, in our traditional culture in Timor-Leste, we sit together with family when we need to contribute money. I also contribute money, like $5, so we have balance. Whatever my family members without disability can do, I can also do. One night in 2009, Alberto was working as the MC for a community concert. He was particularly drawn to one of the singers, a young woman, Celestina Carrion. At that moment, I called him to sing on stage, and I started to have feelings towards her. At the time, I used all my best manners to convince her. I wasn't brave enough to tell her how I felt, but I used my manners to attract her. I was able to convince her to fall for my manners. I talked a lot, made different jokes, told stories, did lots of different things. Celestina is also blind, and she and Alberto started doing Braille classes together. I wrote her a letter using Braille and gave it to her. I wrote, I like you, if it's okay, will you be my girlfriend? And she also answered me using Braille, and the answer was yes. <laughs> Alberto and Celestina went on to marry and have two kids together, who are also blind. Their family of four lives together, independently, in a little house in the eastern suburbs of Dili. When I visit them, they're singing to each other from different rooms. As a father for two children, I have a really big responsibility for these two. 
they are the same as me. First, to continue to support and care for them, protect them from sickness. My hope and dream for the future is that they become good people, like other people. Most Thursday mornings, Alberto makes his way across town to the radio studio, navigating Dili's chaotic roads and public transport system. After making breakfast for the family, Alberto leaves the house and waits by the side of the road. If I hear someone walking and I hear the sound of their shoes, then I ask, brother or sister, can you help me? And if they answer okay, I ask their help to hail the public transport. When he gets to the radio studio, he confirms topics and studio guests for his show. Over the past year, Alberto has also helped teach other people with disabilities how to make radio. And now they work together as a team, with their show gaining a wide following from government ministers to everyday citizens. When I first became blind, I found it really difficult compared with other people. At first I felt so sad because I didn't see the beautiful colors of the world and the modernization quickly changing in the world. But then I realized through this sadness that I still have an opportunity to live, the opportunity to be free. My dream is that through this radio program that we broadcast, especially the topics related to people with disabilities, many people can learn and become aware and connected to the situation for people with disabilities and know the rights of people with disabilities. That report was brought to you by Laura McDowell in Dili. In early March, Amnesty Indonesia board member and veteran human rights activist Robertus Robert was arrested in Jakarta for singing a protest song that was critical of the Indonesian military. Robertus has been charged under Indonesia's notorious internet law, and if convicted, he faces up to two years' imprisonment. Roberto's case is the latest in a long line of arrests and prosecutions that human rights activists point to in their criticism of the internet law. They say that the legislation is overly broad and abused by the powerful to suppress freedom of speech in Indonesia. I spoke over the phone with Andreas Hasono, a researcher for Human Rights Watch, about the history of the internet law and its impact on public discourse in Indonesia. Okay, hello Andreas. Thank you for joining us. Could you uh, start by telling us a bit about the uh, the internet law and what it is and, and why we should be so concerned about it? The Indonesian parliament passed that internet law in 2008. Of course, because the internet is becoming a very powerful media. So the parliament wrote that law specifically with the medium in their mind, the internet. It is to be coupled with the Indonesian Criminal Code, which contain defamation, libel, slander articles. So that internet law was especially made for uh, defamation cases on the internet. But that law can be exploited by powerful people to retaliate against people who had made allegations of corruption, fraud, or misconduct. So there are a lot of criticism against that 2008 internet law. 
eight years later, because of so much public criticism against that 2008 law, the parliament amended the 2018 threat law, reducing the jail term for defamation from six years to four years, but still retaining criminal penalties if a large defamatory statement are communicated over the internet. And can you give us some examples of how this law has been used? Oh, there are a lot of cases. A farmer, a fisherman in Surabaya protested against the reclamation of the Jakarta Bay. The government would like to build more than a dozen artificial island in the Jakarta Bay. And he said that he was against a plan to build a bridge into one of those islands. The company that built the, the land, the island, sue him for defamation. And because of that, he is charged. That is one example. Right. And of course, uh, most recently, just a few days ago, we've heard the case of uh, Robertos Robert, who was has been charged uh, for singing uh, a, a song. Could you tell us a bit more about this case? Robertos Robert is a lecturer. He is a board member of Amnesty International in Indonesia. He was speaking on a public protest on February 28, 2019. It was outside the palace. During the protest, Robertus Robert sang a protest song. It is an old song used especially during the, the 1998 protest against President Suharto. The song criticized the Indonesian armed forces. Of course, the Suharto regime was a military-backed regime. This is a protest song. It is also accusing that the Indonesian armed forces is not protecting people, just, just protecting the government, the regime. And because of that, he was charged with the internet law. A retired general made the complaint, and the police reacted, arrested him in the middle of the night, questioned him for more than 12 hours. He was later released, but still charged. The penalty for this particular article that he is charged with is two years imprisonment. Uh, there are a lot of public outcry against his arrest. In fact, the hashtag Robertus Robert that day went viral, number one hashtag in Indonesia. And a lot of people have been charged under the law and uh, have a lot of people also been then sent to jail? In other words, what is the, you know, what has been the impact of this law it has a chilling effect uh, in the public, especially among among activists, whether they, you are fishermen, whether you are farmers, whether you are grassroots activists, environmentalists, or people like Robertus Robert, who is pretty high profile. It kind of scaring people to be too noisy when protesting against people with power. And you mentioned the law had been amended um, have there been yeah. further attempts to push back against the law? There are still ongoing campaigns to, to repeal the, all criminal defamation articles, including the internet law, replacing them with civil defamation provision that contain adequate safeguard to protect freedom of expressions from unjustified interference. What human rights people would like to see is, okay, it is fair to 
choose someone who commit a defamation. But we should also protect Indonesia in general from unjustified uh, interference from powerful people using criminal defamation or discriminal defamation articles. With the Indonesian elections coming up, uh, do you think this law will be an issue in the elections? Unfortunately, not many politicians are aware on the negative impact of this defamation article. Don't forget that the mother of all these criminal defamation articles is the 1918 criminal code, meaning that it's been more than a century. It was made by the Dutch. During the time, 1918, it has 30-something defamation article. Maximum penalty was seven years uh, jail term. Now, under Indonesia, there are more than 100 articles on defamation in several laws. The maximum penalty is life sentence on, wow. on contents considered to be treason against the state of Indonesia. So it is even getting worse than the Dutch in these articles. Why is it getting worse? Is it uh, is this something that's very, very recent, like post-Sohato, or was this something that got worse under Sohato, or what, what's the historical context here? In general, I guess freedom of expressions uh, was, of course, very bad under Sohato. It was also pretty bad under President Sukarno, the first president, also becoming a dictator in the later part of his rule. In post-Suharto Indonesia, reform only took place, you know, maybe two, three years after the fall of Suharto in 1998. But by 2008, when Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono became president, himself a general, that reformacy process basically ended. So we are seeing more and more draconian regulation. What we are seeing today is also reflecting the up and down of Indonesian history, but in general, we have only a few years of rights respecting government in Indonesia. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today, Andreas. Thank you. Thank you. That was an interview with Andreas Hasono, a researcher on Indonesia for Human Rights Watch. New Narrative published a story about this internet law in January titled Silence by an Elastic Law which discussed another activist who was charged by the authorities. You can read more about this case on newnarrative.com. For a few days last month, much of the world's collective media focused their attention on Vietnam's capital, Hanoi. US President Donald Trump and North Korea's brutal leader Kim Jong-un were in town for their second summit to discuss denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula. The meeting turned out to be a lot less exciting than promised. Not only was it overshadowed by the India-Pakistan crisis and the congressional testimony of Trump's former lawyer Michael Cohen, the summit itself was cut short when Trump and Kim failed to reach an agreement. For Vietnam, though, the event was still a significant one. With an estimated 2,000 members of the media in town, the country trotted out a level of hospitality usually unavailable to Vietnam-based journalists. Michael Tataski looks back at his time in the Trump-Kim media circus. In the run-up to an ultimately meaningless summit, international outlets with a local presence, such as Reuters and AFP, filed a number of colorful stories on local businesses taking advantage of the moment. 
There was the barber offering Trump or Kim-style haircuts for free to anyone willing to emulate the odd couple. There was the craft beer bar with pints of kimchi-infused beer called the Kim Jong Ale. And there were the t-shirt sellers who appeared to have seamlessly shifted their business model from phrases like same same but different and good morning Vietnam to an international diplomatic summit on economic sanctions and bilateral denuclearization. Looking back, it is evident that many in Hanoi cannily used the event as a promotional opportunity. The government, for example, used the dining hall at the media center to show off Vietnamese cuisine, with several well-known local restaurants serving up Hanoi specialties, such as pho and bun dao. One of the country's largest tourism agencies offered journalists free tours to famous destinations like Ha Long Bay and Ninh Binh. I have no idea how many people took up this opportunity, but it was clear that Vietnam's leaders wanted to showcase the place. I flew from Ho Chi Minh City to Hanoi the day before the summit began. Much of the city looked as it usually does. Despite some of the reporting, there was no Hanoi-wide summit frenzy. In most districts, you wouldn't even have known that anything out of the ordinary was going on, if not for the Vietnamese, North Korean, and American flags that had been arranged on countless light posts. The International Media Center, hastily put together in a cavernous building near Hanoi's main train station, was the gathering point for many of the reporters, photographers, and videographers in town. The free Vietnamese food was generally well-received. Less so was the problematic live feed we were promised, which more often than not failed to work, or simply screened ads for Vietnam's tourism destinations. For reporters without access to the actual summit venue, which was essentially everybody except for the traveling U.S. and North Korean press corps, it was not a TV screen worth flying across the world to cover. It was better, I found, to hit the streets, particularly around the Metropole Hotel, where Trump and Kim met. Here, you could watch their respective motorcades arrive, and also observe the crowds of curious onlookers waiting for the roads to reopen again. Security around the hotels the leader stayed in was tight, as expected, but otherwise the event was surprisingly relaxed. Sadly, this was not to last. Trump's post-summit press conference had originally been scheduled for about 4 p.m. on Thursday, and a sign-up sheet was sent around the press center that morning. I submitted my name, not actually expecting to hear anything, but 30 minutes later, an email came through. Meet outside now to depart for the JW Marriott Hotel, where the briefing would be. Several open-top tour buses, which are part of a struggling city tourism initiative, were requisitioned to transport us. An extremely frustrating 30 minutes followed, as dozens of reporters converged on one man with a list of names who had to give out passes to get on the buses. Journalistic camaraderie can be fickle in nature. While we're happy to righteously support each other's right to report in the name of a free press, all semblance of civility and solidarity go straight out the window once bus passes are involved. Once on board, and after plenty of jostling and shouting, we were whisked through Hanoi's usually congested streets, with a police escort clearing the way for us. Never did I expect to see the press receive such support in Vietnam, given its strict controls on the media. We stopped at a building next to the hotel for a security sweep, during which news broke that both Trump's lunch with Kim and a scheduled agreement signing ceremony had been canceled. The press conference would now be at 2 p.m. We were hustled into the briefing room, expecting fireworks. Surely Trump would be angry that the summit had failed, and Cohen's scathing testimony had occurred overnight here, so the president hadn't been able to respond to it yet. However, one of the more skin-crawling moments happened just before Trump took the stage, when Sean Hannity, 
the conspiracy theory touting Fox News host, who has developed a wordingly close relationship with the president, appeared out of a side door about five feet away from me. Attending a Trump press conference in a professional capacity is one thing, but I wasn't expecting to encounter Hannity, who I consider to be an offensive insult to journalism. Forty minutes later, Trump, who usually specializes in showboating, wrapped up an unexpectedly docile press conference. There was very little to glean from the whole experience, and at the end of it all, I felt a need to bathe in Clorox for a long time. That night, with the circus finally over, the gathered press did what we do best. Drink. Sadly, it seemed the red carpet which had been rolled out for us all week had been rolled up as soon as Trump, and the global limelight, left. The bar I was in, along with about two dozen other reporters from around the world, got shut down by the police at 11.30. The next day, I was more than ready to head back home, though I was glad I went. International summits, while often not productive in terms of policy, are a great way for journalists, especially freelancers without the backing of a large press organization, to meet peers from around the world while sharing notes and getting advice from more experienced reporters. As an eight-year resident of Vietnam, I was also proud to see how well Hanoi pulled the summit off. The week went by with barely a hitch, and the coverage of the city and the country was resoundingly positive. One of my main frustrations with media coverage of Vietnam, especially from the U.S., is the focus on the war narrative. For a few days, that narrative changed, with a few minor exceptions, to Vietnam as it is, a vibrant, welcoming country with far more to offer than stale Apocalypse Now references. That was brought to you by Michael Tsasaski in Ho Chi Minh City. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Adam Bemma, Laura McDowell, Andres Arsono, and Michael Tsasaski for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb, wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa. Sampai jumpa.